difference is, is not only good because it generates new ideas, but because it destabilizes and destroys existing institutional standards and expectations that it opens you to other new configurations, even if those ideas themselves aren't like extremely reasoned. Like that's where the value of difference comes, not just in the quality of the idea, but actually the destabilization. Welcome everyone to Culture by Design. I'm delighted to have with me today, Professor James Evans, who is the Director of Knowledge Lab at the University of Chicago, which has collaborative granting and employment opportunities as well as ongoing seminars. He also founded and now directs the Computational Social Science Program at Chicago. James, you need to explain what that means after we do your intro, because I don't think most people understand what computational social science is. So let's just make a note of that. Sure. And sponsors the Associated Computational Social Science Workshop. He teaches courses in augmented intelligence, the history of modern science, science studies, computational content analysis, and internet and society. Before Chicago, he received his doctorate in sociology from Stanford University, served as a research associate in the negotiation, organizations, and market group at Harvard Business School, started a private high school focused on project-based arts education, and completed a BA in anthropology at Brigham Young University. He is especially interested in innovation, how new ideas and practices emerge, and the role that social and technical institutions, for example, the internet, markets, collaborations, play in collective cognition and discovery. So, James, welcome to the podcast. I'm really, really happy to have you here. Thank you. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's go back. So what is computational social science? Well, social science tries to understand how we engage in collective action, collective thinking, collective memory. I mean, all the things that we we do as people, not just individually, but together. You know, we build institutions and states and we try to regulate safety and all these things. Computational social science tries to use computation to help our understanding and our support of these institutions in ways that we couldn't do without them. And what do I mean by that? Well, one aspect is that because of the digital breadcrumbs, the digital traces that we leave behind in our activity, you know, every time we, I mean, we all know the experience of running one of these digital photo red light things, you know, that kind of captures us moving through space. But every time we engage in social media, every purchase we make, all these things leave digital traces. And so computation can allow us to, you know, to produce this enormous telescope that can see society as a whole or nations as wholes engaging in transaction, other kinds of behavior at scales and both large and small scales um, that are really unprecedented. So it's not just deploying the sensors so that we can see all these things, but it's reducing this data to make sense of it. 
you know, how do we put together the text and the image data and all these different kinds of data to make sense of, you know, what it is that the people are thinking and feeling and anxious about? What are they doing? And how does it all fit together into a causal framework that can allow us to do better at the things that we care about? So that's, you know, computational social science is just using computation to do a better version of social science and social policy Mm -hmm. than we have done before. And it's true that we can take a lot of unstructured data and make it structured now, right? And Mm -hmm. then it's more usable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, one of the powerful things is, you know, with the rise of the internet, there's been increasing demand as well as supply of this data. So this demand for modes of collecting and we call it dimension reduction, right? You can imagine if I give a speech and there's 20,000 words, unique words in the speech, then you could say that my speech is 20,000 dimensional. That's really high dimensional, but that doesn't make sense. There weren't 20,000 unique ideas in my talk. There may have been five or six. Mm -hmm. So figuring out how to use things like deep learning neural networks and other kinds of ensemble models that really understand language and understand images at detailed levels allow us to kind of boil these things down to meanings that are recognizable, transportable, comparable in ways that makes things like culture, you know, and communication tractable and measurable in ways that they they just haven't been before the present. So, so James, I want to, you don't know this, but Here's the way that I became exposed to you. So you gave a speech at the Brigham Young University graduation commencement for, I think it was College of Social Sciences. Mm -hmm. And I was there. I was there with my daughter-in-law who was graduating. And I didn't know you from Adam, but you got up and, and you started giving your speech and my eyes got wide. And I looked down the aisle at my son was sitting a a few chairs down from me, a few seats down. And I looked at him, he kind of leaned forward and looked at me and, and we kind of uh, non-verbally said, wow. And I started taking notes. You really got my attention because we at Leader Factor were so interested in culture and the connection between culture and innovation. And you brought in the perspective of research based on collective intelligence. So I got to tell you, your speech was pretty incredible. And I thought some of the insights that you shared were just amazing. So let me begin our conversation with a couple of statements that I like. So one of them is from Tim Brown, who's one of the co-founders of IDEO, the famous design shop. He said, all of us are smarter than any of us. And then, so we'll use that as a little bit of context. And then there's another statement that is purported to have been made by Lou Platt, who was the CEO of HP years ago. It's at least it's attributed to him. I don't know if he actually said it, but the statement goes, if only HP knew what HP knows. In other words, we have all of these knowledge assets and they're distributed everywhere, but how do we harness and harvest those knowledge assets? We know so much, but the trick is it's not only in discovery together, but then using what we have discovered. And so 
with those two statements in mind, I'm just, I'm so anxious and curious to ask you about just major insights and findings in this area of collective intelligence. So could you take us on a little bit of a journey and help us understand what you scholars and researchers are finding out about this? Because we're, we're anxious, we're trying to do it, but we need help. Well, I think we all need help, but I think one of the underlying principles, which really has, has struck me over and over again as I've looked at this over the years in different contexts, is really the, the kind of the power of diversity across contexts to, and by diversity, what do I mean? Well, I mean diversity of experiences, diversity of perspectives. And also diversity of identity. I mean, which is you know traditionally how we think of diversity. You know, diversity from the perspective of gender, you know, race and ethnicity, a variety of different kinds of identities, which ends up influencing, as I'll talk about, I think in a minute, these other kinds of diversities of perspective and approach. So this this I mentioned in my talk at BYU, and I think is uh, is really people didn't start thinking about it in a serious way until the 21st century. But at the very beginning of the 20th century, there was this paper by Francis Galton, who was a famous statistician and geneticist and eugenicist. I mean, they were all all early geneticists were eugenicists, and his he was the cousin of Charles Darwin, and he was really excited about exceptional talent and ability. And he wanted to figure out how do we, you know, in a way that feels very and should feel dangerous to us today, you know, how do we like make sure that, you know, this, we preserve this exceptional ability and we, we don't all, you know, flow down to the mean. And he engaged in this activity where he was completely surprised at, at the result. He had onlookers and about 800 signed up, 793 of their guesses were completely filled out and appropriate, but they guessed at the weight of the steer that they saw at this West England stock fair. Hmm. And if they got the guess right, then they would succeed at uh, getting the dressed meat, which was, you know, worth a lot. And so, and the, you know, the weight of the steer was 1198. The closest individual guess was I think something like 1195, so like three pounds off. The average guess was 1197, so it's one pound off. So it's like less than. I mean, you know, this is this is an enormous steer. No individual, you know. So this is one simple case where he was just, and that the median was 0.8 percent off. So it was 120, 1207, and so you know, it was nine pounds off. And so the I think let's see, yeah, 10 pounds off. So I think, you know, what was just kind of mind-blowing to him was that he was looking for exceptional talent. He found that, you know, not average talent, but the average of the talents. And one of the reasons why that worked is because these weren't just people. This wasn't like me looking at a steer. These are people who own cows and steers looking at a steer. Each one of them knew exactly what theirs weighed, and they could look at what theirs weighed and what this weighed. And and they were not just people who owned them, but people who valued them from a living, who had different approaches to weighing and assessing the relative qualities of a steer. There were butchers who yeah. understood what the dressed value of the meat was. You know, what is it's not just the size of this thing, it's how much meat is on this. So, and what we found since really 2000 
is that it's about a diversity and independence of data and a diversity and independence of approaches, different kind of calculational approaches. And when you put those together, you end up seeing these advantages, which we see, we've seen over and over again. I mean, just last week, for example, we had a paper come out in PNAS that showed that, for example, flat teams, so these are teams that have very low hierarchy where everybody participates in the leadership, are much more likely to activate the diversity of the members of the team and produce outputs which are much more innovative. And by innovative, what do I mean? Well, I mean multiple things. One is they're much more likely to combine elements in novel ways that have never been seen before. They're much more likely to produce outputs which are disruptive, which is to say, when people look at them, when they reference them, they don't reference them in the context of the things out of which they came. They see them as a new direction, Mm -hmm. fundamentally. They don't cite the things that they cite. They see them as kind of like a turning point in the stream. So we're really interested. So diversity, I think, is a critical component in this aspect of kind of collective intelligence and things that, that not only realize it, but activate it. Things that activate it include really disruptions of the scientific system, disagreements, diversity that's contained. This idea from Joseph Schumpeter, famous 20th century economist, that goes back to Karl Marx called this idea of creative destruction, where when something succeeds, it just dominates. Everything else is destroyed. But the irony of this process is that if something succeeds too well, it destroys all the diversity that could make it better in the future. It actually crystallizes itself. So success ends up being its own worst future failure. And if anything, the social science and science of innovation is not of creative destruction, it's of destructive creation. It's it's basically that breaches in success and agreement that activate these diverse approaches are the things that fuel novelty and innovation. Mm -hmm. Professor Evans, I think one of the things that you said in your speech that I wrote down was that we should revere and reverence difference. I think you said that. I'm giving you credit for that. Yeah, yeah, I said that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not, I haven't heard anybody put it quite that way to revere and reverence difference. How do we do that? What have you learned about how we can do that? And do you have any advice for practitioners who are leading teams and leading organizations who have, I mean, one of the distinctions that I often make, and we talk about diversity and inclusion. Diversity seems to be primarily about composition and makeup, where inclusion seems to be much more about belief and behavior. And so we see, for example, I see many organizations that are very diverse compositionally, but they're no more inclusive for it. And so they're not able to take advantage of the diversity they have. So going back to your statement to revere and reverence difference, what advice do you have about how to do that? Well, you know, I'll first maybe mention a couple of uh, findings that I think are suggest some principles. One of the things that we that we were looking at when we looked at teams over the last few years, one principle is just size. When you have really big teams, 
it turns out that they're much much less likely to activate their underlying diversity. I mean, you talk about, you know, how, you know, even if you have like all this diversity of background, identity, if you're, you know, um, but if you have really large scale teams in science, we looked at this in software development and technology development invention, in all these cases, the larger the team, the less innovative the output, the less likely they were to generate things that were really seen as new directions. They were more efficient in some ways, you know, they were mm-hmm. able to pump out more outputs. It's just the outputs were less interesting. And I think there's several reasons. We looked at, for example, the funding underlying these teams, and we found that, you know, large teams needed more resources, either from grants or from the organization or whatever. And so they were risk averse. And that risk aversion meant that the way, if you're, if you're a creative team, you know, you're trying to make a new video game or a new movie or produce a new product, the way in which you succeed, the way you hedge against failure is to take a success from yesterday, someone else's success, your own success, and tweak it. Because you know, you know, if you're a production studio and you're trying to decide between like a novel independent film script, (laughs) Transformers 9 or whatever, you know, you're basically going to go with Transformers 9. It's going to give you Transformers 8 receipts minus Epsilon, minus some little amount. Like you're like, so you're basically just doing momentum. And so you kind of lock in the present by hedging against failure by basically building on, on other successes. And big teams are able to produce things really quickly. So, you know, that you can beat others, even if everyone's looking at yesterday's successes, you know, you can beat others to the punch. Mm -hmm. And so that's, even though you, a big team could have a more diverse composition of persons, it's very difficult to activate that composition. And I found this recently when we were looking at COVID therapeutics, diagnostics, and vaccines. So For many areas in science, you know, there's a big problem. And so there's like an ongoing churn of people and perspectives that are kind of working on these problems. And we basically looked at at COVID vaccine and therapeutics, and we tried to basically predict those that would kind of like come out uh, down the pike in the future. And if we took into account who was doing what, we improved our prediction of those things that would actually be discovered by like 500%, by a huge amount. It it basically meant that because everybody attended to this thing, there was all these resources, almost no ideas were being generated. Like the ideas that were present at the moment that the crisis really kicked in were like the sum of ideas that really got investigated because everybody, because of that speed, we're basically trying to invest in prior successes, like prior perspectives, how the configuration of ideas at the moment that it became a big deal, which is, again, it's, so it's, yeah. So I, I would say that's, so that's one principle of size. Another principle related to the article that I just mentioned is really kind of the flatness of the team. And the way in which we measure and assess this is the degree to which diverse members of the team are able to participate in leading roles. So they're able to guide the direction of the team and they're credited for that guidance. 
and leadership. And we look at that leadership ratio, that the number of people who participate in any way who are also participating in leadership mm-hmm. in those teams. And those, you know, so that L ratio, that leader ratio is kind of an indicator of flatness. If it's one, then every single person is taking a guiding role and is being credited for those guiding roles. And when you do that, you activate more the diversity within the team, dramatically improving both the novelty and the disruption of the uptake, you know, the likelihood (laughs) that, you know, when someone sees this thing, it's really a new story. It's a new direction. And then a third thing that we're just exploring right now, but it looks really quite promising is we've looked at, let's say you've got a team of people with difference. You can imagine the, I'll use a geometric metaphor, the diameter you know, of that difference could be very large, okay? It could be extremely diverse, but you can imagine everybody, it's possible, could be on one pole or the other mm-hmm. of that diameter. So there's a lot of difference, but there's also a lot of distance between those people. And what we found is that when they're like maximally close to each other, when people are as close as they can be to each other, but they span the biggest difference, then that facilitates the ability to engage in ongoing conversations, which are associated with disruption, novelty, and ultimately uptake. So they're able to successfully craft novel ideas that are at the juncture of of different individuals. If they're close enough that they can converse individually, but collectively, they actually are really quite diverse. So these are just ways to kind of activate diversity in the context of something like a team. So then if they're diverse, if they cover a lot of ground, if they have a lot of range, but you're saying, but then they need to be close. So does that mean that they are overlapping in their knowledge exactly. and their skills. And so, exactly. and so and they in their have language. And their, okay. their ability to and language. That's so right. they can communicate and connect. Mm-hmm. They exactly. have the, at some point they're So they become interdisciplinary as a collective mm-hmm. because they have to cover a lot of ground, but they have to be able to connect. If they can't connect, then they can't do the combination and recombination that innovation requires, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like, how can you maximize the possibility for bre- for for spanning this distance uh-huh. is the fact that even if everybody can't talk all at once, that any combination of people, yeah. right? So you can craft enough combinations across this space that it improves the likelihood that ideas from one part end up yeah. improving or changing ideas from another part. So- um, Mm-hmm. Professor Evans, let's come back to the second dimension that you talked about, and that is flatness. So we could frame that as cultural flatness, meaning that we're trying to neutralize the liabilities of hierarchy. And we are much more, therefore, if we're culturally flat, at least this is the way that I like to think about it, if we're culturally flat, then we are more agnostic to title and position and authority and power distance. We're just much more agnostic to it. Mm-hmm. And that allows us a cultural flatness in which we can debate issues on their merits. And so the idea, so there, we're going to remove the exaggerated deference to the chain of command because that gets in the way. It's an obstacle. So the hierarchy is necessary 
We need hierarchy. We're not going to get rid of hierarchy. We need a division of labor. We need clear roles and responsibilities. We need accountability. But how do we neutralize the negative side of it, the liabilities of hierarchy that clearly get in the way that really freeze people, freeze their discretionary efforts, freeze their ability and neutralize their ability to connect and do the things that you're talking about? So you talked about you know, the leadership ratio sharing that where it's more widely distributed, it's democratized. Do you have any insights or findings that have that would be helpful to, again, to practitioners? Because in most of our organizations, the team, the intact team, and then the cross-functional team, but it's still the team, some incarnation of a team, is the basic unit of performance. That's our world. We use teams mm-hmm. as the basic unit of performance. And the way that I like to view it is we only do two things. We do execution, which is to deliver value today. And we do innovation, which is to figure out how we're going to deliver value tomorrow. That's all we do. But we use teams to do it. So going back to, as you say, flatness, do you have any insight or advice about how to achieve the flatness to neutralize, again, neutralize the liabilities of hierarchy. I think that uh, the way in which you specified that difference of execution versus innovation is it's, I mean, these have different functional requirements. You know, execution benefits, you want to lock in a set of reasons, right, (laughs) right, and recipes that have been developed in the past. And that's a place where hierarchy really sings. Innovation, right, where you're trying to generate new values and you're engaged in an experimental search, this is the place in which, you know, flatness really benefits. And so having teams that are both trying to execute and innovate at the same time, you basically have these two demands really fighting with one another. And, Mm -hmm. And so this is where, you know, if you really, if you're engaged in innovation, that's really where you, you benefit from reverencing and revering difference. And again, it's here's the thing. It's not only just like because the other perspective is so important. I'll give uh, one example of uh, this is an experiment, not that I ran, but Nicholas Christakis and his team at Yale ran, where they had a number of people engaged in this kind of network activity where they were trying to produce a value. In this particular case, it was a color that would kind of match with the other colors of other people in the team. So they're trying to engage in this complex coordination exercise and they just keep getting stuck. People kept getting stuck. And what they did was they replaced a handful of the nodes or the people in the system with robots. And the robots were dumb robots. They just would basically produce random results. Um, But because of those random results, it actually allowed people to search out other parts of the space and the whole collective ended up performing much better as a result. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like the difference is, is not only good because it generates new ideas, but because it destabilizes and destroys existing institutional standards and expectations that it opens you to other new configurations, even if those ideas themselves aren't like extremely reasoned, like that's where the value of difference comes, not just in the quality of the idea, but actually the destabilization. So to succeed in innovation, 
you're really surfing this boundary between order and chaos. Yeah, you are. You are. <laughs> yeah. You are. Yeah, that takes us to another distinction that I think is is so relevant to your research, and that is, so just taking the the individual as a unit of analysis, not the team, but the leader, the individual. It may be a leader, maybe a individual contributor, maybe a technical in a technical role, who knows. But the point is that when you're doing execution on one side of the ledger, mm -hmm. you know, coming back to that distinction between execution and innovation, when you're doing execution, everything that we learn, I mean, I think about my own career, James. I spent several years in manufacturing and I think about the training that I went through. I think about statistical process control. I think about uh, Deming's quality management. I think about theory of constraints. I think about Toyota production system. I think about Six Sigma and the Demaic methodology. I think about all these things. What do they teach me? I think about business process reengineering. All of these training movements and tools and methodologies that we learned over the years, what did they teach me? They taught me to reduce variability. Execution was all about reducing variability. You've got to take variability out of the system. You've got to wring it out so that it's scalable because what you do needs to be scalable. We're looking for efficiencies. We're looking for economies of scale. And so I was acculturated. I was socialized into this way of thinking and the, into this discipline. Now, there are many virtues associated with that, many benefits. Okay, but then embedded in my role as a, an employee, as a manager, as a leader, is also innovation. And I have to do both. I have to do execution and I have to do innovation. Well, the, here comes the collision. Because innovation doesn't reduce variability, it introduces variability. <laughs> yeah. And so there's this natural tension and contradiction mm -hmm. and collision that are taking place. Here I am, deeply socialized. You know what? I was taught to reduce variability, but I was not taught how to introduce variability into a system. And I would dare say... Professor Evans, that most of us who are out leading teams and we're responsible for innovation, we have not been taught how to introduce variability into a system. We've only been taught how to reduce it. And so culturally, we have some handicaps. We have some obstacles and we get in our own way often. We don't know how to do this. So do you have any any thoughts on on that, on this tension that becomes very, very real for us mm -hmm. as we're trying to innovate? Yeah, no, I think this is it's a beautiful summary of variance reduction versus variance expansion and exploitation, you know, in the context of, of innovation. I think that um, that's exactly what we're interested in, in doing. And I think a critical piece follows from with Six Sigma and these other kinds of approaches, you think of a massively engineered system, like a semiconductor fabrication facility at Intel, right? When they move one of these facilities to a new country, 
like Ireland, I remember about uh, 12 years ago, they moved a big fab uh, or they were going to introduce a fab, but they, they wanted it to be a replication of, of one that was in Silicon Valley. And, and uh, when they, they had so intensively, you know, manufactured out variants, right, that they didn't know what the new components of the facility were, you know, so when they kind of like they knew that it might have some interaction, the entire line with magnetic north, for example. So they, they like literally tried to scoop up this entire thing in context and replace it yeah. in this new context because they didn't know what the interactions were that made it so good. Because mm-hmm. the invariants had been basically you know engineered out of it until the whole thing was like a single enormous product. And so I think understanding that that process is a process of of what we call you know path dependency yeah um right you take one step down the path right and if that step is successful right if we engage in this kind of evolutionary process of variance reduction then that means every new successful step is going to constrain the space of things we're going to look at at the next step we're going to keep that good thing and we're going to and so all of a sudden all those other pathways that could have been better we call one of the liabilities of path dependency is what we call in kind of complexity science, local maxima. So you get in a place where, where you're kind of, you know, you're walking down this pathway and then you, you reach some plateau and you can't go higher given that configuration. You have to basically destroy some of those things. You have to start over again. Other places that didn't seem as promising early on mm-hmm. and end up being much more promising later on. And even if they aren't promising later on, their combination or their logic, their principles can be combined with successful approaches to generate something new and better. If they're killed, then through this variance reduction process, then you end up being in a situation where you, you don't have you know, it's like a genetic resource pool, you know, that hits a virus, hits that thing, mass agriculture, you know, if every single stem of maize, you know, has the same genes, then like a pest that can exploit that has destroyed a country's wheat harvest or corn mm-hmm. harvest or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so one of the challenges in balancing these things is basically preserving you know, like a, a diverse gene pool, you know, where you've got multiple approaches, even if one is better, even if one is much better, preserving other opportunities that then become critical for combination later on, you know, when you get stuck. So let's talk about penancy a little bit more. Let's dig into this. So th- this is a concept that we use in strategy all the time. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it means that as you allocate resources and you make decisions, you constrain yourself as you move forward, you foreclose options in the future because you're saying yes to some things and you're saying no to some things. So you're creating more dependencies as you go. Mm -hmm. Strategically, that's very, very true in terms of capabilities that you build, the way you allocate resources. But let's talk about path dependency from a cultural standpoint as it relates to innovation, because I think this is very interesting. There's evidence to say that your path dependency creates forces at work in the organization that will kill your efforts to innovate in the future, that you will eat your young. And so, right, there's a, there's a school of thought that says, you know what? You can't do that in the mothership anymore because 
you're going to eat your young. You have perverse incentives going on internally. So you need to take it outside the mothership, set it up as a skunk works so that it will be free from the cultural path dependency that you've created, these forces that will try to destroy the green shoots of innovation that grow up because of the incentive structure that exists and the path dependencies that you've created. So Professor Evans, I'm just, I'm wondering what your point of view about that is. Do you think that you need to, that's why so many organizations are creating accelerators and incubators that are outside of the mothership so that they can be free and liberated and, and we won't kill their efforts. So what do you think about that? What's your point of view? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, there's sometimes and situations in which even that's not enough. I mean, you know, I think of, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're companies acquire other companies because they couldn't have grown them. You know, I think, I mean, probably the most you know clear example is something like in the oil industry. You've got refinement and you've got exploration. Yeah. And exploration, you know, gives out thousand percent bonuses and uh, refinement looks like everybody's lockstepped. And so the incentives for participation in the associated cultures are so radically different that these have almost always been in different sectors because they just can't, the incentives are so radically different. The cultures are so diverse and the bonusing and the, just the way in which people. So I think that that figuring out where it is that one needs to place something that will facilitate productive difference, whether it's in a different person or if it's in a different team or if it's in a different investment, right? Or if it's like completely outside the investment world and it's something that you're tracking and monitoring mm -hmm. as a source of potential recombination. One of the things that we've looked at within people and within groups is... Um, we look at, at scientists and innovators and we look at their produce over time. And one of the things that's really striking is, you know, their ideas age, the ideas that they think were the most exciting. It turns out on average in every field, at every time period, on average, the best idea, the idea that you cite or reference the most in building your work is an idea that was coined the year before you published your first idea. <laughs> And so, and your ideas age in science at about a, a month a year. Mm -hmm. But what's really striking is the slope is much higher for successful early successes, right? You just, you can't get away from your successful ideas, even if you want to, you like, no one will let you. Yeah. And, but here's the, the countervailing thing, which I think is even more than just path dependency. If you look at people who are not only referencing early ideas, but you identify whether they're basically criticizing them or building on them. It's almost exclusively when people become mature in an area at about like 10 years for inventors and scientists that we don't have the data for managers, but I think it would be really exciting to look at this. They all of a sudden, you know, massively increase the number of ideas that they're critiquing, which are almost always new ideas. So you have this demography in a system where basically if you've got a certain percentage of, of older participants, and by old, I just mean when they began, mm -hmm. when they began in the system, 
then it crystallizes the system. Like this, it's like a crystal. You cannot move any of the parts. There's zero churn to the ideas that enter in this space. And so finding ways to manage the demography of your system, like the age of your, your system, is again another recipe for thinking about this. When we looked at what were the biggest, most disruptive and novel sources of ideas in science and in technology and elsewhere, we, you know, we found that it, it tends to not be diverse people, people with diverse experiences. They tend not actually to be diverse teams even. They tend to be diverse, what we call expeditions, where people from one part of the innovative space travel over to another part and basically share their alien ideas, right? And, and the reason is because even a team requires a kind of a social contract that this makes yeah. sense to yeah. all the participants. So if you really want to do something new, then you know that social contract has not been forged. Like no one has demonstrated the hypothesis that combining this and this makes sense. It has to make sense to somebody, right? Typically somebody who has a set of answers, patterns, resources, methods that's traveling over to this other place that's never seen those approaches before. So how do you produce, you know, as you suggest, it's like, you know, sometimes you need to, to exploit boundaries mm-hmm. in the firm to facilitate this difference. And I think this is one, you know, even though we're talking about interdisciplinarity, multidisciplinarity, I think one of the critical things in this connected age, in this connected age where we're aware seemingly of everything on the internet and, and where we're trying to integrate things across our firms, a critical problem for sustainable advance is about protecting boundaries, actually. Mm-hmm. Like silos are not the enemy. I mean, silo, like if we don't have any boundaries in the firm, then we don't have any place to put those green shoots. Right. We don't have any a reservoir of ideas that we can draw upon in the future. And so in this age, it's not just about bridging disconnections. It's about preserving areas of difference within the firm, within the team and beyond. I guess that's why innovation is hard. It's, <laughs> it's, it's such a paradox. Because it is. It's a paradox. You think about leaders and organizations, what are they concerned about right now? They're saying, look, the more dynamic the environment, the more hyper-competitive it is, the more unforgiving it is, then the more either I learn how to, dis- we learn how to disrupt ourselves, or we're, we're going to be disrupted. It goes back to, you know, Schumpeter, creative disruption. That's going to happen on a cyclical basis. There's going to be upheaval. What side of the upheaval are you going to be on? The giving side or the receiving side? That's really what it comes down to. So I think people are saying, how do I increase, how do we as an organization increase our adaptive capacity? How do we learn to disrupt ourselves? Mm -hmm. Because the alternative is that we're going to be disrupted. One of those two things is going to happen. And how do we avoid this fossilization, this calcification, this crystallization that you're talking about? Because it will happen unless we disrupt ourselves. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. There's an amortization schedule on all of our ideas. Mm -hmm. And so I think we see this more clearly than ever before because the average span of competitive advantage is shorter. It's like ice. It's everything's melting. The only question is, what's the rate of the melt? And so we're trying to figure out how do we take what you're doing, James, 
the research, the findings, the pattern recognition, and then how do we apply it? How do we operationalize the things that you're finding? These are critical findings and critical insights. We have to take those and and apply them because innovation for for most of our listeners here, innovation is an applied discipline. They're not on the research side, they're on the applied side mm-hmm. and they have to lead it. Yeah. They have to lead it as an applied discipline. And they are balancing the competing demands of execution on the one side and innovation on the other, as we talked about. And it is very, very difficult. Well, as you suggest, I mean, it's, it is, there's, a, there's an element of critical paradox here where basically, you know, failures are correlated with successes. I mean, in terms of magnitude, like the, and I think this is one of the challenges that, that places like the U.S. Army and major corporations and certainly big science funding agencies are afraid. They're afraid of failures. They're afraid of the visibility and the exploitation of failures by their enemies, their political enemies, their enemies within organizations. And, but in every domain that I've looked at, basically the rate of failure ends up being correlated with the size of dramatic success. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in the business of innovation, then you got to find a way to value failure and to account for that value in a serious way, rather than just leave it exposed as a liability. Mm-hmm. In the context of big things like the National Institutes of Health and whatever, it has to be a public education because otherwise your enemies will kind of exploit those failures to demonstrate you know, yeah. poor performance or whatever. So it, it, I think it really requires a changing of the conversation and and the things that get valued again, which is bizarre. I mean, it's bizarre that it's, you've got to value failures, but you, but you do this one. I'm trying to remember the name of the, there's a, a venture capital firm There's one in uh, Silicon Valley where they will only invest. If not only there's a champion among the partners of the firm, but there's also someone who really believes that they shouldn't invest. Now, that hinges on the fact that there are enough partners in that space that have diverse perspectives that if there's something at stake, there's a reason why it shouldn't work. (laughs) Uh, And so being able to kind of manage failures at a serious level is absolutely critical. We had a, a paper in Nature a couple of years ago that showed that individual organizations that if you don't know anything else about the organization, these are nonprofits and social movements and you know scientists or science labs, all these organizations, insofar as they accelerate their failures, their failures are accelerating, they're increasing in time. That was the highest ex-ante predictor of ultimate success. Mm. Is the fact that they were failing faster and faster. Now, of course, that means that they are actually engaged in some kind of a path dependency. They're not starting over again every time. But what's interesting there is that it worked within the individual. It's not just that you had to manage this whole system. You had to basically be able to amortize value and increase being willing to and actually instrument you know, your failure. So I think this is one critical piece of uh, of accounting that we need to change about organizational performance that if we don't then then we're in a, a really tricky 
position because we're going to be basically trying to increase expected value. With expected value, we reduce variance, as you suggest earlier. With the reduction of variance, then our ability to produce something new is is over. You know. Let me ask you one more question, James. If you've got time for one more, I want to talk about the cultural requirements of doing this because it seems to me that what this requires is that we recast the prevailing norm in the organization and that we detach fear from failure. So if we need to accelerate failure, Mm -hmm. if that's positively correlated with the rate of success and our ultimate success, and we need more failures, then that norm needs to be changed in a fundamental way. That means that there's creative abrasion. There's the obligation of dissent. It just changes the terms of our engagement. And there isn't this normal fear, this normal fear that accompanies failure. If you can't get that out of the system, out of the culture, then I think it's going to be hard if there's a high degree of fear that that just continues to attend failure, then I think people will, A, they're not going to try as many things. B, if they do fail or make a mistake, they're not even going to tell you about it. They're going to conceal it. They're going to hide it. So do you have any thoughts on the cultural requirements to accelerate failure? Because there are very good reasons to try to avoid it. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I think I think one is measuring failure. If we're trying to basically kind of maximize our points in whatever managerial or other accounting system, you know, finding ways to actually valorize and reward fast failure. Yeah. You know, we don't want slow failures. I mean, that these are you know failures that kind of bet the farm. I mean, not as as an organization. Like an organization might not be able to withstand like a large slow failure, but the ability to identify failures early on and kind of like clip them as paths that are pursued and, you know, and maintained, I think is, uh, is critical. Another piece is about basically not just valuing disagreement as individuals. I think culturally, I think that is important and critical for outside success and creative endeavors and endeavors that that uh, involve innovation or aspire to innovation. But I think it's also about Bell Labs had in its golden age, and again, you know, it's hard to evaluate that golden age because it was sitting on top of a, a monopoly. But in its golden age, it really valued the entire disconnected department, right? So someone who was engaged in something that produced a failure at the end they were only valued as a function of the total group level productivity. And even though they weren't all working as a group on the same projects. So that allowed the team, as it were, or the department to really create a portfolio of difference. And if we create like budget and other kinds of systems where it's all about, you know, the success, the individual success is contained, then it makes it really difficult for us to engage in the risks that would balance against each other because we're only able, you know, like everything has to be a skunk works. It has to be valued at some small level rather than 
us being able to, as individuals and organizations, teams, to kind of create a portfolio of opportunities that's going to, where something needs to yield, but not everything needs to yield. And if anything, I think, yeah, one of the things that we need to do is find ways to like identify some of these failures in some cases, kill them. In other cases, preserve them as modes of difference. This is this thing that's going on in artificial intelligence, which is an area that I spend a lot of time in. Deep learning neural networks are these models that have come to dominate AI. They're really powerful for a variety of types of applications. But um, they're, you know, in many cases, they're running out of steam for exactly the principles that we, we just talked about, like creative destruction. Like they're so much better than some of these other approaches that they've killed all the practitioners or who and, and killed them, but they've converted them. But then it's like the logics that were part of those alternative approaches are no longer available. And so like this whole space is slowing down in a serious way. And it's becoming really concerning to the big companies like Google and DeepMind and these others. And so, you know, they wish that they had and are increasingly funding these groups explicitly for their difference and even for their failures. One thing that we've that we're working on right now is when you have competitions and performance of various types, we're trying to find and build metrics that allow an assessment of basically the underlying diversity in the system related to success. So you can imagine the past, and when I say past, like mostly the present, I mean, you know, the way in which everyone's valuing these things, they look for a winner. But it's very different if you find a way of combining the winner and the loser's idea, and it's the same performance as the winner, or if you combine the winner and the loser's idea and they perform much better, right? So how do we develop metrics that assess the knowledge of the system as a whole is what we're trying to to engineer and incorporate kind of more directly. And I think I'll be honest, I think when we start doing that, when we start valuing those things numerically and financially, then that increases our ability to culturally value those differences and disagreements. It's hard to do it without yeah. valuing it with money, with bonuses, with rewards, et cetera. Yeah, that's where people's motivations go. Professor James Evans, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for the path-breaking work that you're doing, because ultimately, I think you're helping us understand how we can really liberate and unleash organizations to solve difficult problems and to make breakthroughs and to create new solutions. So I, the value of the research that you're doing to me is just unbelievable. So I can't thank you enough. Thank you for the insights as well. Well, my pleasure, Tim. This is great. And um, yeah, let's stay in touch. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com. 